Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Parkinson's Recovery Radio Network radio show program. We're dedicated to providing information, support, and resources to all individuals who currently experience neurological symptoms and especially those associated with the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's Recovery provides a wide range of free support services that are ongoing. A chat room on Sundays, every Sunday afternoon, we have a volunteer host who hosts a program with call-ins, and oftentimes those programs have special focus with special guests. I oftentimes host every eight weeks or so and provide a barrage of answers to questions that are submitted both in writing and also for people who call in. We have a blog, and of course, you're just now connected to the radio show. I'd like for all listeners to realize that all radio shows are archived, which means there is a recording that you can retrieve of all the shows that I've actually aired over the past five years. There's a wealth of information from experts who know a great deal about the kinds of options that are helping people reverse their symptoms. So check out all of our resources. They really are magnificent, to say the least. Now, we've just connected in, and I want to make sure that I've done my technology the way I need to do it, and I want to make sure that our very special guest today, Glenn Pettibone, is now connected in. Glenn, are you there? I'm here. Oh, great, great. That's wonderful. Okay, I have, I want everybody to know out there who are listening from Great Britain, from France, from China, from Japan, and from across Canada in the United States, as well as all of the other countries of the world, that we have a very, very special guest today who's going to tell his story of what he did to be able to help reverse the symptoms that are associated with his own diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. Glenn Pettibone, thank you so much for being on the show today. You're welcome, Robert. I'm happy to help. So tell us all about yourself. Well, okay, so um, I'm 44 years old. I'm um, an engineer. I've, I've worked for 27 years as uh, an engineer in various different industries and also consulting. And um, in 2008, um, I started having shaking in my left hand. And um, initially, the doctors thought it was essential tremor. And in fact, they, they still think that there's a component of essential tremor that I have. So I take some medication for that. But um, the symptoms started to progress, and in uh, 2011, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And at that point, um, it wasn't known also that I had um, metals contamination. That was found later. So there's a possibility that I have industrial chemical exposure that that may have uh, contributed or may be a factor in in the Parkinsonism that I suffer. But it was progressing fast, so just between 2011 and uh, January of 2013, um, I was climbing the ladder of the medications pretty fast, and I tried all the agonist drugs, and um, I had horrible side effects from all of the agonist drugs, and uh, so I couldn't tolerate those, and so those are an enormous number of options that are usually put on the table for people with Parkinson's. That weren't those options weren't really open to me, and it, it ended up just being that the, they had to treat me with uh, Cinemet or carbidopa levodopa extended release, and um, so basically um, this this went pretty fast. I mean, initially when they diagnosed me with the condition, they said, "Oh, you've got 15 years to to you know to run your course of." various different medications. Many people experience 15 to 20 years of runway with this thing, and so you've got time. So um, I said about basically just trying to make sure that I, I was taking the right doses of medication to, to hide 99 or 90% of the symptoms so that it wasn't obvious. And um, by January of 2013, I was taking basically what amounts to eight times the recommended label dosage of uh, carbidopa levodopa ER, taking 1,500 milligrams a day, and I was taking Azelect, and I was taking Comtan along with that, and I was taking 
propanolol for a little bit of the essential tremor. And then, you know, and then it was not a very happy situation, so I was also taking a few antidepressant pills as well. So I was taking this enormous amount of medication, and I had come to sort of a crossroads where increasing the medication was starting to cause dyskinesias. And so increasing the medication wasn't going to any longer really hide the symptoms. It was a point at which things were not going to be really able to be hidden. So... Um, I realized that since I couldn't take the agonist drugs and I couldn't take uh, carbidopolevidopa, something else had to be done, but the doctors really didn't have any option. I saw on the, on the television one night um, a news story that indicated uh, that smoking in nicotine actually produces dopamine. And I said, hey, <laughs> maybe there's something to that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, uh, I said, you know, don't, I, dopamine, I need that. So I wasn't about to set about smoking, but, you know, I was aware that there was um, non-smoking uh, nicotine alternatives on the market. So I, um, I mentioned this to my doctors, but they were a bit surprised. They were astonished and said, you know, we don't want to give you anything that causes cancer. And I go, well, well I had researched it, and it does not cause cancer nicotine by itself, it's predominantly everything else that's in the cigarette that, that damages you in that way. So right. I tried it. I, I, I went down to the drugstore when I was on a business trip one time, and I, I bought a pack of nicotine gum, and I tried the whole stick, which was two milligrams, and that I didn't know the proportion at that time, and it turns out that that's two whole cigarettes. And I was driving along listening to Led Zeppelin on the radio, and uh, between the 1,500 milligrams of dopamine and the uh, 2 milligrams of cigarette, I, I really had kind of an, a sort of a, a uh, euphoric type of experience. You know, it was like really listening to the Jimmy Page guitar solo, and I could literally, I feel like I had total recall of every note that he hit. <laughs> and uh, so um, I said, wow, well, this works. And then, but the problem was I got back to the airport, and then I just started retching in the airport bathroom. I didn't realize that it was going to make me so sick when I came down off of it. So I said, well, you know, this is great, but I probably need something like a decade lower. And so I just started thinking about it. And um, I started reading about it. And I, I have some background in agriculture. In fact, I have an agricultural patent. Um, and I have always been gardening since I was a young uh, boy with my father and uh, doing things like trips to cherry orchards and so forth. So you see a picture of me on the first slide at the cherry orchard with my uh, kids. So I know about plants and food to some extent. And then I got to thinking, hey, you know, tobacco is related to some vegetables. And then I, I went back, I Googled it, you know, because I had to refresh my memory. And then it was like, lo and behold, tobacco is part of the solanaceous vegetable family and tobacco is actually related to the potato, to the tomato, to the eggplant, to the pepper, and also some obscure plants. One of them, for example, is the goji berry, which are sometimes called the wolfberry. It's called goji berry in China, and it's called the wolfberry, I think, in Eastern Europe. Um, so I got to reading about these, and I, my recollection was that they also contain nicotine, and then I started reading about the various levels of nicotine in each of those plants and realized that the champion of the group was uh, eggplant, which has it has about a decade lower in terms of the per-serving uh, contents than, than a cigarette does of nicotine. So it actually takes 20 pounds of eggplant to equal one cigarette, but on the other hand, at a serving, you might eat a half a pound, and so it's just sort of on the order of, you know, one serving of eggplant or a couple of servings of eggplant is sort of equivalent to um, a tenth of a cigarette. So I'm, I'm like, wow, well, wow that, that might be right dialed in there. So I, uh, um, at that point, I started um, experimenting with eating potatoes and tomatoes and eggplant and peppers and I found a variety of eggplant called a Chinese eggplant that I was able to slice up and eat with, you know, just some dressing or something, and, and uh, that was pretty good. And then I realized that it was good enough that I could just eat it raw. 
and uh, by itself, almost like a cucumber, and even chew on it and kind of, um, you're probably going to think I'm silly, but a little bit of a chewing tobacco effect out of just kind of sticking it in my, between my cheek and gum kind right. of thing, you know. Right, right. And I realized, and I, you know, later on I learned about cerebral spinal fluid sinuses that you have in your nasal cavities in your cheeks, and that's why nicotine uh, is able to be uh, expressed through your skin when you chew tobacco. And um, so I got a little bit of uh, relief that way, and I was realizing that if I ate one or two of these Chinese eggplant a day, I, I actually felt good enough that I could actually, I was actually starting to forget about my medications, uh, my Parkinson's medications, and um, have some moments where I was super relaxed. It, almost immediately within about the first month, I started to notice that the dyskinesias went away, and I had, I had, had started developing some dystonias, which are permanent muscle contractions in my left leg. And those lightened up and loosened up, and I felt a lot better. Um, and so a lot of my rigidity was going away. Um, and the shaking was able to be controlled by some of it. And I was able to start sort of forgetting doses of medication. And so I turned the forgetting doses of in, into medication in terms of it, right almost directly into deliberately missing them. And I, I sort of climbed down the ladder of medication, and by the time... A couple of weeks had gone by, I realized an, un, uh, an unnerving side effect of the eggplant, which is that it turns your teeth uh, tobacco yellow. <laughs> so, oh. you know, so if you eat it raw <laughs> you, and you, then you smile, you look like, you know, you look like, I don't know, some kind of Halloween character, <laughs> or something, you know. And uh, so that's not very good. So um, I realized, well, i got to get a juicer. And really, if you think about it, that's what a juicer is intended to do: is for you to help you, help you eat large amounts of vegetables without having to have, have having to chew them all day long. Um, and so I got a juicer, and um, I also figured out through some of my reading that tobacco has some kind of chemical relationship with with calcium, um, because um, after I got the juicer. Um, and that'll be important in a second. I'll tell you why that calcium relationship is important. But after I got the juicer, I started making eggplant juice um, and storing it in clear, uh, empty plastic containers in my fridge. And I realized that after about a day and a half, um, they would sort of turn to more sugar water, and the effects that I was getting off of it were, were not as significant. So I looked up the MSDS for nicotine, and I realized that it was a light reactive chemical and then it was uh, reactive to a lot of different things, in fact, so like acids, uh, oxygen, heat. So various different things can oxidize the nicotine and transform it. Um, and so I don't have a chemistry lab in my house. You know, I don't have a, a mass spectrometer or gas chromatograph or anything in my, in my garage. <laughs> so I can't do food science. You know, I can't sit there and and run samples of eggplant juice through the machine and tell you what levels they have. So I have to sort of go on a little bit of guesswork, and I figured out that if I juice in uh, a dim room without bright light or perhaps even close to dark, um, and then also get some amber beer bottles or amber uh, carboys um, and put the juice in the amber carboys and then keep it in the refrigerator out of the light, that that would sustain the eggplant juice, and it worked. I got about three or four days out of it at that point, so I could start batching this stuff. And um, as far as the raw eggplant, I figured out that if I froze an eggplant, like you take a Chinese eggplant, which looks a lot like a long cucumber, a purple cucumber, um, you freeze it, and then you grate it with a cheese grater, and then you can mix that into yogurt, and I thought the yogurt was a good idea because it's got lots of calcium in it, and the nicotine appeared to be stabilized by the calcium. And the reason why I'm estimating, and I'm only estimating because I don't have, again, a gas chromatograph, is that um, I'm estimating that nicotine sustains longer in calcium because um, nicotine has this ability to actually absorb and bond to different melanin-containing uh, tissues in your body and also it stores in your bones and and um, it, it appears to be stable in the bones long enough that they've actually measured uh, nicotine levels in Egyptian mummies 
And so nicotine won't last a week and a half in my refrigerator, but it'll last 3,000 years in an Egyptian mummy's bones. Mm. So, so I'm estimating that the abundance of calcium in the bones is what sustains it, but don't have a lot of hard scientific basis to be sure, certain about that. However, when you cut an eggplant and you stick it out on the counter, it'll start to brown like really rapidly. It's amazing how fast that it goes. And if you stick it out and leave it o- out overnight, it almost disappears. It dries up so quickly that there's probably some gas phase chemicals in it. And there's also some chemicals called nicotine and nacinin in it that brown really rapidly. So these are the chemical transformations that undergo when it get, when it hits oxygen and light because initially the skin is protecting it from the oxygen and light. So um, <clears throat> anyway, um, I just figured out that if I could grate the eggplant and mix it into the yogurt, suddenly it didn't brown. And so I think that it's controlling the reaction. I'm I'm not quite sure, but but I don't want to digress too much from the main point. What what happened then was. I had some technologies that I could use to actually build some eggplant-based foods uh, that I could eat raw, and that was important because the nicotine in the eggplant, or the, uh, yeah, I found one study that showed that if you boiled eggplant, it would reduce the nicotine by two-thirds. So cooking the eggplant, (coughs) excuse me, got a little bit of nuts in my throat. Cooking the eggplant, um, will uh, actually degrade these uh, important nutrients that are in the eggplant. Um, And so juicing it is a raw form, and uh, freezing it and then grating it and mixing it into yogurt is a raw form. And so that gives the maximum possible benefit out of the fruit. There are probably some other things that could be done. I just, I'm not, I'm I'm a scientist, not a cook, so, (laughs) you know, um, at some point somebody's going to outsmart me there. but so then the way this went is I had some technologies to make some raw eggplant foods, and I went through the months of March and into April um, steadily climbing down the ladder of my Parkinson's drugs. And between April, I think about mid-April and late June, it may have been as early as early April and late June of last year, I was I had actually walked completely off my Parkinson's medications entirely. I was uh, I was down to zero. Then in May, sort of halfway through that interval, I got hit in a car accident. A guy ran a red light and creamed to me, um, and so I had a neck injury and um, just the, sort of the whole you know experience of that was was frustrating and upsetting to the whole routine that I had going. Um, because it's time-consuming to, you know, make foods and time-consuming certainly to make specialized foods like I was doing, and and also sleep patterns are very important in Parkinson's. And so if you injure somebody with Parkinson's, then you set them back a little bit in their routine. It's a pretty, it's a disease that requires some some routine to be, so that the person can feel their best. And so I I was kind of declining, and so then by the end of June, um, I had to add in a little bit more Parkinson's medication. So then it, I added in about um, 10% of the Parkinson's medications that I had been taking. And then I started to feel slowly better, and by October of 2013, I had actually been able to walk back off some, and so I was down to about 93% reduction in the total Parkinson's medications that I was taking. Um, but, you know, on your list there is, I think you were going to ask me about the happy accidents. So ask me about the happy accidents, Robert. <laughs> well, first, Glenn, I want everybody to know that I'm your host, Robert Rogers. You're listening to the Parkinson's Recovery Radio Network. And my guest today is Glenn Pettibone. If you'd like to be able to talk with Glenn, this is a live show, not a recording. You need to call in to the following guest call-in number and simply signal to me that you'd like to be able to talk with Glenn. The guest call-in number is 347-945-5358, or the toll-free number is 877-590-0733. So the happy accident? The happy accident. Um, well, I mean, in the course of this time, the other things that happened with with me were that I basically 
um, my acid reflux completely disappeared. Um, so I don't. I used to take two protonics per day because I'd have so much acid reflux. I'd have it in the morning and then in the evening, and I take none of it, and that that disappeared in about the first 30 to 40 days. And um, I also had uh, asthma, and that that went away. So I basically discarded my inhalers. I've been taking a steroidal and a and an albuterol inhaler. Um, and then I also uh, had my had a regular checkup and tested my cholesterol, and it was it was high normal. But there's some indications in the literature which we may be able to talk about that the cholesterol medications have some relationship with Parkinson's disease. So I decided to stop my cholesterol medication, and it's just been in the high normal range basically. Um, and also. Panning forward to this year in January, I had been, my whole life I'd had seasonal allergies in all seasons as well as allergies to dogs and cats, and that's gone now. So I can sit next to the family dog without taking a Claritin every day for all day if I want, and I don't have a problem with sneezing and watery eyes and all of that. So I got rid of acid reflux, um, cholesterol, asthma, and, and, and uh, allergies. And um, so I'm close to being on no medication of any kind in my life. <laughs> oh, wow. So, but, you know, I think we should back up a little bit because what, if the listener listened to the first uh, 30 minutes of the broadcast here, um, they probably would get the the idea that all I have to do is take solanaceous vegetables and that's it. Well, it's not the case. Really what I'm doing here is actually the kitchen sink of everything that had previously been suggested with Parkinson's disease in terms of alternative, uh, well, I mean, until in terms of dietary and supplementary type of alternatives, uh, almost everything, I think. Um, I started out way back when I first um, was diagnosed eating uh, high antioxidant fruits and, and, and vegetables. Um, for example, cherries seem to make me feel really well, and it turns out that cherries have melatonin in them which is important towards something that I could possibly explain later. And so cherries are really important, if you, even if you get dried cherries. Um, and then I was eating blueberries, and I had discovered that green tea was had a substance called ECGC, which I understand is a powerful, I think it's a powerful antioxidant and maybe a chelator, which is something that can help you eliminate metals from your body. And so green tea was a good plus, and I started uh, supercharging green tea even back in the early days of my diagnosis with um, matcha powder, which is the ground green tea leaves, um, and that's that was really helpful when I started doing that. You can even get it at Starbucks and Pete's Coffee. You can just order a matcha soy latte or or a green tea um, and and ask ask them to put a, add a couple of scoops of matcha powder powder to it and that that's really important and then um, uh, so I was getting relief from some of these things and I had been taking supplements like vitamin E vitamin D um, vi B vitamins really important uh, B12 especially is is helpful and folate and B6. And uh, interestingly, when you're taking levodopa, they tell you not to eat B6 because, um, or actually, if you take B6 while you're taking levodopa, it interferes with your levodopa, and then it also um, interferes with the production, I think, of COQ10 in your body, which is another supplement I take. But, but because it interrupts with that production, they're sort of they're fighting each other, even though the B6 is the vitamin that your body needs, and the levodopa is something that you're trying to put into it. So there's a conflict between the good thing and the and the symptomatic relief thing. And um, but anyway, so now I'm actually taking more B6 because I'm almost off all of my lev levodopa. And uh, so I was taking all of the. I mean, if you were to go to the Parkinson's.org website or uh, any of the other Parkinson's website and pull up the complementary therapies link and look at the vitamins and supplements that they recommend in the literature so far, I, I was on it. But what really made a difference was moving to these solanaceous vegetables in my diet in high quantity actually seemed to make everything work much better. And there's some science behind that. So I could tell you about the science 
if we have enough time. Oh, that would be great. So there's a slide. Um, let me get up the slide. That, hold on, my computer needs to catch up. The slide, the, the slide that shows a little diagram, not the scale of a dopaminergic neuron, um, what it depicts is a dopaminergic neuron with a receptor, a nicotinic acetylcholinergic receptor on the dopaminergic neuron. And that receptor is way out of scale. It turns out that, you know, they're microscopic, these little receptors, and there's thousands of them potentially on every dopaminergic neuron. And this is basically, when I learned this, I was like, wow, my body's actually designed for nicotine. And it really is. There's, your dopaminergic neurons have are driven by receptors called nicotinic acetylcholinergic receptors. And the, uh, that means that they can accept either a nicotine or an acetylcholine. And when they accept a nicotine or an acetylcholine onto the receptor, then the, what a thing called an ion gate or an ion channel opens up. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. Remind me not to eat walnuts before the... <laughs> I'll do that. <laughs> But but walnuts are important. So but anyway, the um, so if you if you bond a nicotine or an acetylcholine to the receptor, the ion channel opens up and that allows calcium and sodium to enter the cell and potassium to leave the cell, and then out of the cell gets expressed dopamine into the synapse between the dopaminergic neuron and the, either the motor neuron or the cognitive neuron that's the next in the signal chain. And when that dopamine gets expressed, it hits the receptors on the postsynaptic uh, nerve ending. And then your signal goes to your muscles or to your thought pattern, and um, you get a success in, in moving or thinking. Um, the excess dopamine then also hits a receptor on that same dopaminergic neuron called a dopamine receptor. And what that is is that's a feedback sensor, and then that shuts the cell down again so it doesn't just try to keep producing dopamine ad infinitum. And so it's kind of like saying, Houston, we have dopamine, you know. And so you know, there's yeah. a control signal sent back to mission control <laughs> that you stop the dopamine production, and there you go. Well, so what's happening when you, pr when you give yourself dopamine with levodopa is you're putting dopamine into that syn synapse space uh, ex exogenously, and you're shutting down any healthy cells that um, might otherwise produce dopamine on their own. Um, and so I, at least I think, and this is just my theory, and I'm not necessarily an authority that should be saying this, but, but I, here's what I think. I think that what's happening is in the long term you're producing, uh, you're shutting down these cells and they're starting to wither and die and, and, and go through uh, long-term potentiation in the negative sense that they're becoming lethargic. And then you start to have dyskinesias as a result of that after you've taken um, dopamine medication for a long time. So this is actually taking this pathway somewhat better because you're actually causing the cell to act the way it was actually literally designed, which was to accept a nicotine or an acetylcholine and then open the ion channel and then express the ions and then produce the dopamine. So you're actually, instead of keeping that cell lying on the couch, so to speak, you're asking it to get up off the couch and exercise. And um, so uh, acetylcholine is important. And more recently, I've, as of December, I started eating more eggs with uh, a vinegar source because acetylcholine is an, is an uh, I think it's called an ester of acetic acid and choline and eggs have lots of choline. One egg has something like, I think, 11% of your daily value, or maybe it's, I can't remember this five minutes, it was either half or 11% of your daily value of choline. And then if you combine that with an acetic acid source, like I put hot sauce on it, because then I'm also getting a little nicotine out of the peppers. Um, but so if you start your day like this, you have two eggs that are, you could have two poached eggs, that'd be really good. Um, and cut open the yolks and then put uh, hot sauce on that and then and then do this too, put turmeric on top of that. And once you've doused it with turmeric, you've also put an important antioxidant and anti-inflammatory uh, that's a natural, that's 
well published in the literature as being safe, effective, and helpful. And so you you, you kind of uh, put those three together and, and on a piece of gluten-free toast, and go and there you go. It's a great way to start the day um, because you've got nicotine and acetylcholine that are operating the dopaminergic neuron to produce dopamine. And at the same time, you've got turmeric, which is an anti-inflammatory and an antioxidant that's protecting your cell. And so you're getting a sort of supercharged breakfast. So then if you add in some eggplant juice to that, you're you're great. <laughs> you know, so. That's the icing on the cake, as they say. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's some of the basic science of it. Um, then if you look at, I've got a slide that is probably cycling up there. You can see some food examples of that. So there's one dish that I call an NACH bomb, <laughs> which is you basically take some green Kamado tomatoes and you slice those up and you make yourself an omelet with those and with some mushrooms, which have a substance called tyrosinase in them, which then sustains, that, that converts tyrosine, which is in things like your, your milk or your dairy products, and tyrosine is also in some of these vegetables and other, other substances that you're eating. Um, so the mushrooms have tyrosinase. You're going to convert some of that tyrosine into, into de levodopa, basically. And then you're going to have eggs, which have choline, and you have um, a hot sauce, which has some, uh, some nicotine and acetic acid, and you put turmeric on it. And I, I found this eggplant spread at Trader Joe's. Um, put that on it, and then slice up your green tomatoes, and there you go. Have that. That's, that'll really help you. Or... In the lower left corner of that particular slide, there's a picture of what I called Aubergine Pomio. And so that's, again, like a frozen eggplant that you grate with a cheese grater, and then you put the grated um, eggplant into um, some Greek yogurt, which is really high protein, because protein is what's going to help you rebuild your brain. And you mix those two together, and then you pour um, pomegranate seeds on it, which are a huge antioxidant source and then have that for breakfast or for any other part of the day. And then there's the idea of doing a, a green tomato caprese that's in the upper right of that slide. So you can take a green heirloom tomato of any kind and slice it up and then put uh, some fresh mozzarella cheese slices on it and some salmon. Um, wild Alaskan salmon is really good. If you, if you get sockeye salmon, sometimes that's farm-raised. It's probably better to get the wild Alaskan sockeye salmon. And uh, then you can build yourself a caprese out of that. And then another thing I experimented with is um, the grated eggplant on top of mashed banana and, and then a papaya slice. Papayas, I mean, there's lots of vegetables that are not solanaceous vegetables that actually have nicotine in them, just to a lower degree. Um, <clears throat> the papaya plant itself has nicotine in the leaves and so forth, but the ripe fruit does not. Now, it could be that in the ripening process that the papaya is losing the nicotine. The nicotine is, is ubiquitous in plants because it's part of a ripening strategy of the plant. It's part of how the plant actually does a thing called predator selection. So <coughs> when, the, um, when the plant is green, there may be certain predators that prefer that, but by and large, most predators are preferring the red vegetable. And so the plant wants the ripe vegetable with the, with the seeds in it to flourish and to be able, for the predator then to be able to pass on the seeds and actually grow new plants. And so um, there's a couple shows you can watch on this. One is called The Botany of Desire by Michael Pollan, and you can actually Google that on YouTube, I think. And he talks about how plants have developed a, a desirous relationship with, with, with human beings as their, as their selected predator. And then you can also look, there's a show in the series called Nature, um, and the, the episode is What Plants Talk About. And it tells you about this clever little plant called the tobacco plant and how it manipulates different creatures to be able to uh, uh, be successful in terms of reproducing as a plant. But the general idea is that the ripe fruit typically is what's selecting the predator. When it becomes ripe, then the predator can pass on the seeds so the fruit can reproduce. 
but in, t- in terms of famine or at the in- beginning and end of seasons, then the unripe fruit becomes desirous to the to the animals. And so there are certain benefits that, that that the unripe fruit is providing to certain predators at certain times of the year, so they come back for more later, or so they can survive a, a famine, so that they can get through to the next interval of reproduction for everyone. Hmm. So, but anyway, that's a little bit of a sidebar. <clears throat> now you've got some remarkable stories of some foods and food preparations that have made a huge difference to you. Many people will be curious about the possibility that there are other options that you pursue that also make a difference. People find that there are other types of exercise regimens, for example, Tai Chi, Qi Gong, yoga, or some energy work might make a difference. Has any, have you pursued any of those avenues or possibilities yeah yeah because of our focus today on the food i hadn't really mentioned that portion of it um i mean even early on i started walking predominantly i i have a um, you know i have a bad uh disc in my neck and so running is not the best thing an impact type of exercise is not the best thing for me so um even early on i started walking quite a bit and i'll walk like a couple of miles a day and that's really important because the uh, the thing is, your brain is suspended in cerebral spinal fluid, not really in blood. It's it's in a sac that's a lot like a fetal sac um, of, a, of the fetus in the womb. And so it's in this very clear liquid called cerebral spinal fluid that's created in the ventricles where the main blood supply comes up to your brain. And then that cerebral spinal fluid then gets very slowly excreted through things like your scalp and through lower parts of your spinal cord, but there's no circulatory system that's inherently connected directly to your cerebral spinal fluid. It gets a a very vague circulation from your heart and then from things like B waves, which is breathing and so forth. So when you exercise, you're really getting the circulation going in the cerebral spinal fluid, and then that gives you the opportunity to potentially dislodge and, and circulate out toxins that are building up in your brain. When I... I'm, I read Dr. Mishley's book in last summer, and that helped me add some additional dietary elements, but it also voiced the importance of exercise and sun. And sunlight's important because dopamine has a special relationship with your pineal gland and the, and the supply of melatonin. Um, and when dopamine interacts with your melatonin in your body and your pineal gland, it then produces melanin, which then pigments your skin and all of your sensory um, organs and your brain. turns out your brain has got a a dark pigment to it in the dopamine pathways. And um, I couldn't find anywhere in the literature where anybody had really studied that well. But um, I think it's important to the interaction of of your brain and those portions of your brain with some of these elements like nicotine and melatonin, um, that that pigment be healthy. Um, and the same with things like the macular spot on the back of your eye and the dark pigmented section of, the in, of your inner ear. So th- if you get out and walk, you're doing multiple things at once, especially if you walk in the sunny part of the day. You're going to get some sunlight, and that's going to help your pineal gland and your supply of melatonin and these fruits and vegetables to convert into melanin and then you're also going to get some exercise which is going to increase the circulation to your uh, cerebral spinal fluid and um, you know it's, so I've definitely you know it should not be said that you can simply eat your way out of this thing you have to you have to exercise I mean you have to have faith too I mean I think it you know there's so many times in the course of this where prayer and faith in God and or you know in the course of anybody else who might be listening whatever faith they have have faith and you have to have fight too I mean you have to get up every day and say not today this isn't going to take me today and you have to have determination and so find those things in yourself I mean it could be that there's an exogenous motivation for for me it was my uh, my children you know I've got two young children and I love them to death, and and uh, so I find inspiration every single day to get up and keep going to to care for them. So, um, 
you, you know, you got there, there's lots of other things you have to do. You know, it's like it's, we were talking about food, but you're right. All these other things are important. Now, I think um, there's some other things that I could explore to actually maybe rehabilitate a lot of my coordination. I think I was thinking of Tai Chi, uh, and that might be a direction that I would go in, in terms of trying to find somebody who's a Tai Chi practitioner to help me learn that in terms of developing some new motor neuron skills and developing the existing motor neuron skills and so forth. I'm Robert Rogers from Parkinson's Recovery. My guest today is Glenn Pettibone. Glenn just referred to a remarkable book that was written by Dr. Laurie Michele called Natural Therapies for Parkinson's Disease. You can acquire that book on Amazon. She spells her last name M-I-S-C-H-L-E-Y. If you'd like to be able to call in and ask Glenn a question, now would be a good time. Simply signal that you'd like to be able to connect in with him. The guest call-in number is 347-945-5358. Dr. Mishley was also a guest on the Parkinson's Recovery Radio Show in the summer of 2010. So you can go to the radio show page, and if you'll simply scroll back, you'll have to go back a number of different pages because we've been doing the show now for five years, you'll be able to locate several back-to-back shows of a remarkable energy uh, interview that I had with Dr. Mishley back several years ago. So, Glenn, tell me, you've got a just a fascinating story of all the steps you've taken to be able to find relief from your symptoms and reduce your medications. Has it been difficult to convince people about what's really happened with you? You know, it was really surprising to me how difficult it was to convince people, you know, what's what's really happening to me because uh, there's sort of a shock and disbelief. I mean, uh, people, if you tell somebody you can go into the back corner of the grocery store and buy an eggplant and a, and a baked potato and, and eat that and feel better, it's, for some reason it's shocking. I think people have gotten into the mindset that, you know, the only thing that you can do is go to your doctor and get a pill and, uh, or go to your doctor and get a procedure. And those are good. Those are, don't get me wrong, those are important because, let's face it, if I eat, six different vegetables and I'm still not getting a result and I'm out of time, I'm going to take the pill, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so you know, or, or I'm going to, you know, if I try six different exercise programs or what have you, if I try all these alternatives and they still, still it's not working, I have to resort to the, to the best symptomatic relief in the science that there is. But, you know, both, you know, when, when I went in and I was on no medication and my doctors saw me, they said, wow, this is, fantastic um i think when i went back again and i was i was having a a bad day with it and you know i was having one of the worst worst days with it um they were less optimistic about it but you know don't don't worry about the mixed results that you may get just keep going and you'll find long term you're going to get some improvement if you um if you take some of the approaches that are out there to be able to try an alternative uh, methodology we have a caller from area code 301. So you're on the air. Would you like to ask Glenn a question? Yes, this is Ethelene. I'm calling from the Caribbean in St. Lucia. Hi, Ethelene. I have a question. I'm looking at your wonderful slides with the foods, but I notice no bread. Yeah, um, well, one of the things that I found out is that there's a very inflammatory effect to your digestive system from wheat and from flour. Um, some people... I can hardly hear you. Get it. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I, I heard about celiac disease, and celiac okay. disease is is a disease that can happen when you eat wheat or wheat-based flour. Um, grains can cause this. Um, and, you know, if you're doing a, a food program that's designed to help you remove damaged tissues and toxins from your body, and then you inflame the very conduit by which you can get rid of those things, your digestive system, with wheat, then you're constricting your ability to get rid of the toxins out of your body. So it's important that you have, you know, regular movements and 
that you you know that you stay regular because you're trying to get rid of these toxins out of your body. Um, and so what I've done is I have very I really don't I try to avoid bread if at all possible. But what I do do is I get some gluten-free breads, like there's a brand in the United States called uh, Udi's, which is a gluten-free bread. And the, usually these are from rice-based and potato-based flours, um, so they don't have that wheat gluten in them, and so you, they're much more digestible. Well, that's wonderful news for me because I was thinking of dropping wheat altogether because I find in the morning... In the morning, I now eat rice instead, instead of any wheat cereal or bread. I think that's a really good idea. And the other thing is, too, that rice gives you an opportunity to put some turmeric on, on, on your food. You could make a rice with turmeric in it, um, which has that element curcumin in it, which is listed on my slide there of all the foods. And if you look up turmeric or curcumin on the Internet, you'll find out how beneficial that is in terms of Antioxidant capacity. Oh, I use turmeric. Uh, I use turmeric on oh. a daily basis. I make tea with it. Yeah. So that's good stuff. I I use I use the root turmeric with the root ginger together, and I make a tea with it. Right. Well, you could maybe add to that a green heirloom tomato, then into your okay. into your rice. Might be a good idea. You take a whole. I actually get a package of five small green heirloom tomatoes, and I eat the whole thing every day. So I eat, I eat like five, five green tomatoes the size of an apricot every single day. Okay, that's wonderful news. However, your slide on this blog radio does not appear too good for me. Is there a way that I can get a better picture of that? Um, I don't know, Robert. Do you have any ideas about that? Well, uh, it's possible that uh, Glenn could send you an attachment of a slide. Uh, Glenn, do you want to just give your email address? Um, okay. What you could do is you could go to my company website. There, uh, the last slide has my company, uh, Automated Energy and Agriculture, and it's the company okay. that I founded. If you go to our website and click on the info link, uh, you'll find my okay. you'll find my uh, the info email, or I think my email, my email at that website is also available. Okay, I'll do that. Great, Thank thanks you. for calling in. We appreciate it. So, area code four eight zero. You are on the air. Yes, 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 yes. I'd like to. I'm getting an echo. I'm sorry. We do have an echo. You might need to turn off the sound on your computer. Are you on the phone? Are you calling in on your phone? Calling out. Can you try muting your computer? I'm asking about the nightshade family, and that's bad for our How do we reconcile that? Um, let me let me ask: Are you are you question. are you calling in on your telephone, or are you connecting in through your computer? Telephone. Telephone. So, is your computer on right now? No. no. Um, I turned it off. Okay. Let me. All right. Let me try. I think maybe one of the problems is. Hold on just a minute. Hold on just a minute. Thank you for using Blog Talk Radio. Goodbye. Now, uh, do you want to ask your question again now? Yes. I just wondered, the night, this, these are all the nightshade family, which are bad, supposedly bad for arthritis. Have you found any relationship there? You know, I've found a lot of conflicting information on that. I, I, I don't have arthritis, so it's, for my situation, it, it doesn't, it hasn't hampered me in that respect, so I can appreciate how that. I have seen it, though, in the literature, the concern about that, but I see some conflicting information. Some sources indicate that um, that it can uh, exacerbate arthritis, and some sources indicate that it, it does not. Um, it's unclear to me um, what impact that, have, that would have, and again, 
Um, I'm just a person who experienced success with a particular diet, um, so I, I, I'm not a food scientist per se, and so I, I, I don't know necessarily. I mean, I have some ideas. Um, there's, since there is a relationship between um, calcium and nicotine, I could see how there could be an implication there for uh, arthritis because I think arthritis is the buildup of bone spurs, right, at joints? Is it, isn't that right? I, I don't know. Uh, and I, I'll, tell you, I'll just listen to you and hang up because of my uh, sound situation here. So, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, th- I think maybe if you keep, keep healthy calcium levels, it might be uh, something that you could uh, cope with. But I, that's since I don't have that situation in my in my problem set, I don't I don't really have an answer for that that question per se. Thank you. Thank you for so much for calling in. Yeah, my understanding, arthritic kind of conditions are created by a, a, a uric acid buildup, and so it winds up being the focus problem winds up being the kidneys. So. Glenn, I have a question for you. I understand that you regained your color in your vision and also your hearing. What was it like to get your color back when you saw and your hearing back? Wow. Yeah, the, the, in about the month two or three, I started to notice that purple and blue colors were, it was as if somebody had purchased me an HD television <laughs> and that the only colors that were in HD were blue and purple. <laughs> <laughs> So picture driving down the road in like a blue uh, purple automobile is like standing in relief from everything else on the on the roadway, uh, because almost like an a, a, an electric uh, definition of the color. Um, and I, I was like, wow. And I was also concerned, you know. I'm like, well, gee whiz, am I hallucinating from eggplant? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, but but I looked it up and. Um, it turns out in Parkinson's disease, there's color vision loss, which is called tritanomalia. And it, what it is, is it's like somebody t- tinted everything blue and the purple looks black and, every, and, the, and the dimmer switch has been turned down, so everything is darker. So the, the other thing that I was noticing is that when I would drive around in the noonday sun, it was like just unbelievably bright. It was an incredibly pleasant experience. I mean, it, so if it was a hallucination, I was um, I might have kept it, <laughs> you know, because it was it was not disorienting whatsoever. It was just a very pleasant experience of seeing very vibrant and uh, almost electrically vibrant blue and purple, and you know, but the you know anybody who's bought an HD television knows that you know after about a month it starts to become like everyday life, and so there was a there was a you know, sort of a transitional period where at first it was just astonishing and wonderful, and then it just sort of transitioned into sort of the everyday experience. But the thing is, every now and then I'll I'll have an experience like um, I saw a uh, purple-labeled item in the store, and I said to my wife, I said, well, you know, that's a really nice-looking purple. And she goes, well, it's blue, Glenn. <laughs> and I'm thinking that she has tritonomalia, and she doesn't even know it. <laughs> it's clearly labeled purple. Yeah. But but the other thing too is when I looked up, there's these color charts that you can look up online that where they give you a number in different colored dots, and this is meant to test your color vision. And so I looked that up when I first experienced it, and I noticed that it wasn't perfect uh, on the purple side. But then I had my vision tested um, in November of this year and I had perfect color vision. And in addition to that, to my astonishment, he, he, he was remarkably astonished with that I could actually be corrected to 2010. So I was able to actually see things on the, on the, on the eye chart at an acuity level of 2010 when I was corrected. Wow. So I wear, I wear contact lenses, but the acuity has improved actually to a level that's actually better than normal. Um, so that's pretty scientific, that observation. Um, the the hearing thing, at first I just started to have sort of weird hearing experiences. Like I, one time I was at a picnic and I was carrying an ice chest back to the car, and I was about 200 yards or so away from the group of people that I had left on walking across the grass towards the car, and suddenly I could just hear everything they were saying. 
and it was I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, just like completely blown away. Um, and then another time I was in a car, um, and I could hear somebody having a cell phone conversation, and I looked around me, and none of the cars immediately adjacent to me were actually having a cell phone conversation. Then I realized that it was a car two cars away back behind me on the right. Wow. And I had my windows closed to my car, and I'm like, well, this is just bizarre. Um, but But I think... The I don't have a really scientific quantification of what's going on with my hearing, but I do think that I, when I'm when I'm out in the outside, I hear birds with more of like sort of a, a clarity that's sort of stereo than I, I ever had before. Um, so I haven't had my hearing tested, but it would be interesting to have my hearing tested to see if I could quantify any um, observation related to that. And then as far as my sense of smell, there's just been a few weird instances where I think I smelled something that I might not have otherwise smelled, but of course I don't really have a way of calibrating that. So I think my smell is improving, but it's still not. I know my smell is still not great because those around me will say, doesn't that smell bad? And I'll go, what? Oh, <laughs> right. So I think the smell is not necessarily coming back as fast or as profoundly as the eyesight and the hearing did. Tell us all about your business and your company. Oh, well, you know, before this whole problem started with PD, um, I had started to think about the idea of global warming and about the idea of carbon production and the idea of the energy crisis. And I had always had a passion for uh, biomass energy. And then I realized that there were some people that were considering vertical farming for growing crops, and I realized that they were doing it in a really expensive way. Um, and what I came up with was an idea to grow sugarcane in an affordably constructed vertical farming system and be able to produce up to 6,000 gallons per year in a planned footprint of less than a parking space of ethanol and at the same time sequester 100 metric tons of carbon dioxide and we can do this by putting one of our machines next to an industrial site and actually siphoning off the industrial emissions that are laden with hot CO2 and allowing that to provide accelerated nutrition to the plants. And there's also a technology that's already been developed on the marketplace called a micro-refinery, which can fit in a very tight footprint like a parking space. So you have one of our machines next to an industrial plant, and it's siphoning off CO2 making lots of sugarcane, bigger, faster, sweeter, and then you process that into a micro-refinery, and in situ you'd be able to produce thousands of gallons per year out of one machine of ethanol. And the return on investment would probably be a couple of years. And so we've been just trying to find an industrial partner or an investor that would help us to uh, fund a prototype. So if you like the idea of, of solving the energy crisis and global warming crisis at the same time, you can like our Facebook page, and it's on the last slide. Oh, how wonderful. Would you please tell people the website address and very slowly? Yeah. Um, the website for AEA is www.aeabioenergy.com. So www.aeabioenergy.com. Or you can like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash aeabioenergy.com. Or actually, I think it's actually aeabioenergy. I shouldn't have put the com on the slide there. So facebook.com forward slash aeabioenergy. But I appreciate the chance to plug that because maybe we can help two major problems here at once. Yeah, maybe there are people out there that would like to explore this. So maybe you'll get some calls of people who would be interested in learning more about your incredibly uh, fascinating new technology. How right. can people get in touch with you, Glenn? Well, that's a good conduit to get in touch with me through the, through the company, um, especially since it's a private company I started. So um, I am a consultant full-time for another co company, um, but... Um, you know, when you have an epiphany about a really good idea that can help lots of people, you don't want to just kind of keep your mouth shut about it. You want to, you know, even if you've got a full-time thing that you love, if you come up with a good idea, you should pursue it, I think. 
Well, it sounds like an incredibly good idea to me, and I'm excited, quite frankly, Glenn, because it seems to me in a few years ahead, I'll be able to say that I've actually interviewed on my radio show Nobel Prize winners, because it sounds like that has the potential to win you an incredibly wonderful set of accolades. Well, I hope you're right, but I'll be nervous in front of that crowd. (laughs) As would anybody. Now, what does the future hold for you? Well, you know, so I've I've taken a road less traveled here with this diet approach, um, but I want to emphasize that it's a complementary therapy, so I can do little bits or or more if I need to of the conventional therapies. But since it's uncharted, it's a bit like Columbus sailing towards the horizon, I, and I don't know where this thing ultimately goes, whether it lasts a long time or permanently or what. I mean, what I think is that I'm providing an opportunity for my cells to regrow new synapses and regrow receptors and and undergo a process called long-term potentiation where if you do the same thing over and over again, like practicing a guitar or running a racetrack, you get better at it over time. And what is really happening is you're building synapses and receptors that reinforce the neurological signal. So I think that if I just keep going with this therapy, I'm doing that and I think that I'm providing lots of antioxidant and chelating capacity to remove toxic metals out of my body and other toxins out of my body, and so I think that we'll, those those are all positives. I think that um, I've improved these other health characteristics in terms of getting rid of the acid reflux and asthma, which actually I think has improved my sleep, and um, getting rid of the cholesterol problem and the allergy problem, and so my body works better, and so I think I'm using health as a treatment, which is something that Dr. Mishley's book was inspirational and instructing. And we've forgotten to mention also that I'm taking intranasal glutathione, as, as that which she prescribed, which has been helping since October, and that's a powerful antioxidant, and in fact an antioxidant coordinator, which helps to recycle vitamins in your body and helps to provide power to to cells called microphages, which clean out your body. So I guess in summary, I'm doing all these things that are providing both symptomatic relief and nutrition at a level that can help the cells survive and thrive. And I'm doing it over and over and over again, creating a long-term potential. So I think that if I had to guess, I think I'll continue to get better as long as I stay on it. And if I had to guess, I think it would take at least as long as the disease took to develop for it to completely become imperceptible. So if it took me five years to get as bad as I did, I think it'll take at least five years to get completely out of it. I'm not completely out of it now. You know, I I shake a little bit, and I always did, even when I was on medication. But the key is that I'm on almost no medication now at all. And I, I am at a level where I'm comfortable without that without it so but i think in the long term i think that'll slowly slowly diminish at least that's my guess um if anything different happens maybe i should let everybody know (laughs) oh right dr mishley has pioneered a study on this nasal glutathione spray and has uh, basically generated some quite fascinating results. We hope to be able to have her again on the radio show soon so she can talk about those results. Many people take glutathione in one form or another. The difficulty, of course, is that it doesn't pass through the blood-brain barrier, and she's discovered through extensive work with her own Parkinson's patients that this nasal spray really seems to work wonders for many individuals. A number of individuals listening to the radio today have just been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Glenn, what would you want to say to them right now? I would say, you know, that's one of my concerns. I wish that I would have maybe known about some of these basic food ideas early on because you know, there, the, there's actually a study by Dr. Susan Searles Nielsen at the University of Washington showing, and that came out astonishingly like in May, which is after I had actually started this idea. Uh, and I'm not claiming credit for it in advance of her genius because they had been working on it for years. They're just pointing out the irony that I had decided to try this, and then I was just completely shocked or astonished that it was actually supported by an epidemiological study. And, and and leave it at that, but her her study indicated that um, 
you were half as likely to get Parkinson's disease if you had a diet that was rich in solanaceous vegetables. So, um, you know, I think for people starting, if you can adopt some dietary approaches, if you can get out and exercise quite a bit, feel the value of sunlight on your face, and um, take some take, take all the recommended supplements and and take take melatonin, especially if you're taking any kind of sleep aid to get to sleep. Take melatonin to get to sleep. Um, if you do these things, you might have a lot longer runway than if you just do nothing, and take the supplementary medications. Or, I mean, take the uh, prescribed medications. So I wish at some level that early on that more of this information had been known. I, I wonder sometimes how much better off I would have been had, we, had you know, this information been available five years ago or if I had been able to get through the same type of de process of deduction five years ago. Glenn Pettibone, on behalf of the over 150,000 listeners of the Parkinson's Recovery Radio Network, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to tell everyone about your incredible story of recovery. Well, God bless you, and God bless all those 150,000 people. I, I, you know, I love you all. I hope you all feel better in the long run, and uh, that we uh, get this thing knocked out and cured. And for everyone's information, there is also a companion resource supported by Parkinson's Recovery that has a lot of information about natural preparations using fava beans and papaya. Ant Bean posts regularly on the Fava Bean website. You can get to that website, the Fava Bean website, by going to the main website first, which is always easy to remember. It's www.parkinsonsrecovery.com. And you'll see there an icon that says Fava, Fava Beans. If you click on that, you'll be able to go to that website. And Ann Bean, who has a Fava Bean and Papaya farm in Tennessee, Post regularly her stories about what she has discovered in her own personal research. She makes an actual tincture out of the tips of fava bean plants, and that helps her be able to get incredible relief from the symptoms that she happens to be experiencing that are associated with her own diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. And if you haven't already done so, when you're on the main website, parkinsonsrecovery.com, you'll notice there's a little menu item that says newsletter. Sign up for the newsletter, and you'll be able to get announcements of all the many exciting activities that we sponsor ongoing week to week that are providing support, information, and resources to individuals who currently experience the symptoms of Parkinson's. And that's what's happening on the shores of the Puget Sound, where all the women are smart, all the men are handsome, and all the children are truly loved. Know that by virtue of the fact you are listening to this radio show today, whether you happen to be located in Great Britain, France, Japan, China, or Mississippi, that you indeed are on the road to recovery. May you have a magnificent week. Good day.